Blog Talk Radio. Hi and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Today we are joined by our guest host, filmmaker Heather Lenz. She's a filmmaker best known for Kusama Infinity, a feature-length documentary about artist Yayoi Kusama that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and received international distribution. Hart Perry is a filmmaker and artist. He shot the Oscar-winning documentaries Harlan County, USA and American Dream and was an additional camera person on the Oscar-winning Woodstock documentary. He has dozens of directing and producing credits and received a Guggenheim Fellowship for the invention of a holographic film process. Thank you both. I am very much looking forward to the conversation. Well, thank you, Claire, for the introduction, and thank you so much, for Hart, for being here. Um, there's just so much that we can talk about, but I would like to start uh, with discussing your work on the iconic documentary Harlan County, USA, which was released in 1976. For anyone who has not seen the film, could you please tell us a little bit about what it's about? Sure. Uh, glad to be on the show. Thank you. Uh, Harlan County was about a coal miner's strike in Harlan, Kentucky, in Appalachia. The backstory was contextualizing the strike within the history of the United Mine Workers. Um, the film is just so compelling. There's a point uh, where one of the people says that his employer cares more about the safety of a mule than a man because you can always hire another man, but you have to buy a mule. And so when you were working on the film and hearing things like this, how, what, how did that make you feel? It must have been very challenging. Uh, it was compelling. I mean, the, the story is that uh, I was uh, making a, a documentary on Stephen Sondheim and Barbara Koppel was uh, taking sound. Uh, and she showed me uh, some of her footage that she was doing on uh, coal miners. And I realized, boy, this is really, really interesting. Uh, and she needed someone to uh, to film since there was no budget. And uh, I started filming it and uh, and trying, you know, helping helping make it with uh, no budget. <laughs> Well, I guess that's something we, we both know about working in those <laughs> circumstances. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. When I think of this film, I always think of the opening shot of the miners going underground on the conveyor belt. And coal mining is certainly a dangerous job. Sometimes mines collapse. As a cinematographer, what was it like to go underground with the miners? Well, the main thing I was thinking about was not the danger, but it was uh, how to film it. Uh, the first thing is I we were there to film this strike, and I had to uh, you know I wanted to film coal miners actually working, uh, so I talked to some of the uh, coal mine owners uh, to, to get uh, permission to film, and fortunately I was uh, teaching in Columbia and I had my credentials from there, uh, you know for an educational experience. Uh, so uh, I was allowed to, to film in the mine. Uh, there was, you know, a, a moment when they exploded dynamite in the mine while I was filming, and uh, that, that gave me pause. Uh, I bet. Yeah, I bet. That would also be uh, if the sound – I hope the sound person uh, has warning on that. Um and uh, you were shooting, obviously, film back then, not video. So I'd love to hear a little bit about, um, you know, well, for example, sound. Were you, uh, for anyone that doesn't know, was the sound equipment, did you have to be attached uh, by a cable, or were you both 
independently operating your gear? Uh, well, there's time codes that sync the film with the uh, camera, uh, which is generated by both of them. So we didn't have to be uh, connected. The, the main problem with uh, filming in the conveyor belt uh, was that I couldn't use the zoom lens <laughs> because the roof of the mine was, was right there. Uh, so I filmed that with a wide angle lens uh, and then the other thing was how to light being in the mine. Uh, so what I did is we used a portable battery-operated light, a sun gun. Uh, and I shot most of the footage backlit so it looked dark like you were actually in a mine rather than frontlit, which would look a little bit more like you were in a mine set. So obviously you did what you needed to do to get the shots. Uh, that is true. And the... The, the other the thing about filming cinema verite is that you're waiting for a moment, uh, the Cartier-Bresson moment, uh, and you have to be prepared so that, uh, you know, you have like split seconds to say, oh, now it's the movie. Uh, you also have to have the time to sort of wait and, and, and see. With Harlan, we were lucky because we had a, a story of the strike to follow with, uh, you know, <laughs> dramatic moments that uh, that happened during the, the course of that. Uh, you know, I, I filmed a uh, guy who'd just been shot in the head. Uh, you can still smell the gun smoke. Uh, so <laughs> I give a lot of credit for uh, Barbara because uh, the, the, the trick is to have access with the with the people, uh, and she was able to uh, establish a relationship with the union and with the women in the uh, in the women's club, uh, and that they felt uh, comfortable with our you know just being there, sort of hanging out, waiting for something to happen for that cardiovascular moment. Uh, and the other thing that Barbara did is that uh, she insisted on filming until the movie was done, which is like totally open-ended, <laughs> editing until the editing was finished. Uh, and we were, you know, we were young so that uh, we could, uh, you know, pursue being on location for, uh, you know, three months of uh, filming. Fortunately, it happened during the summer, I had a job uh, teaching, and during the summer vacation, you get paid uh, so I could, you know, fund what we're doing. Uh, since we didn't have any money, we actually stayed with a striking coal miner's family in a holler, <laughs> and uh, we couldn't afford car rentals, so we got uh, the miner to drive us around in his car. Uh, and we we're all going to the same places anyway for the, uh, for the filming. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, drama and violence that erupted. And I, I did hear Barbara speak about the film, and she mentioned that she was told if she was ever caught alone at night, she would be killed, and that she started carrying a gun uh, during the movie. And there is a scene in the movie where a man pulls up in a pickup truck and points a camera, uh, I'm sorry, points a gun right at the camera. And we hear a woman's voice, presumably hers, saying, don't shoot. Um, so the risk of violence was very real, and I do know in 1967 there was another documentary filmmaker, Hugh O'Connor, who was killed while filming in Appalachia. So um, I don't know. Was there ever a point with all of this going on that you questioned if it was worth it to keep making the film? Uh, not at all. Uh, I felt it was when I first you know saw the footage. It was like okay. I'm going to put off doing videos for Alice Cooper, and uh, <laughs> uh, this is a really, really interesting uh, scene. The strike had just started, and that was the footage that uh, that I'd looked at. Yeah, and I've also heard, uh, I heard when I listened to Barbara speak, I heard her say that sometimes when you didn't have enough film to shoot because you couldn't afford the film, that you pretended to film 
since it helped to reduce the violence since people felt like what they were doing was being recorded. I thought that was very interesting. Um, so ultimately, you know, the I, film won. I, I, I don't remember that, to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, I, I can't talk about uh, Basil Collins, who is the uh, head of the, the, the strikers, uh, and he that survived the Baton Death March uh, and was a pretty you know rugged character. And what was happening that morning, the sun was uh, just coming up, it was dark, uh, and I decided to film near the entrance of the of the mine where they had to cross over a bridge over a ravine. Uh, and we turned on the sun gun to illuminate the scene, and Basil stopped, uh, and there was sh- shooting that was happening. It was over. No one was getting shot. It was like I felt uh, okay doing it because they were just trying to scare us. Uh, and he rolls down his window, and I'm filming this, and figured, oh, this is an interesting shot. Oh, he has a gun, and, oh, and he's pointing it at me. Holy shit, I hope he doesn't shoot. <laughs> wow, wow. So the violence was, uh, you know, was very weird. Uh, after that happened, Basil sent uh, two of his gun thugs back to the picket line, and uh, there's a shot where you can see Barbara uh, as they're charging us, uh, trying to stop them with her microphone on a boom. They knock her down. Uh, and then they grab the camera, and one of the guys started pistol whipping me. And I was struggling with the camera, and I figured, I've got to get out of here. And it was on a ravine, so I just you know, pushed forward and went head over heels, cradling the camera down the ravine to uh, elude these guys. Uh, so that was my first taste. Actually, the first taste was uh, for the initial shoot. Uh, when we came down there, we met the uh, the striking, the head of the striking miners. Uh, uh, Barbara was given a pistol. And I said, well, this is a new thing. Uh, I wasn't, you know, I, neither Barbara and I are big uh, pistol people. But things got sort of hairy uh, during the course of the, the strike. They, they, the gun thugs started shooting into uh, people's houses. So in the holler where we were, which is on the top of the holler, uh, we put mattresses up against the windows and, uh, you know, we did have guns in case, you know, just to protect ourselves. And they were shooting frequently Tommy Ferguson's house, who's uh, head of the, the, the local union that was on strike. So uh, the, the gunshots stopped for, you know, a couple of weeks. And Estelle Phillips, who I have a good shot of him during the strike pointing a pistol at the, across the, uh, the, the roadblock, blocking the, uh, the strike breakers from coming to the line. Uh, so Estelle Phillips said, Herb, if there's any problem, uh, can I depend on you? And I said, sure, Ethel, no problem. <laughs> but Ethel came up, and uh, they were shooting at Tommy Ferguson's house, and he said, okay, let's go, Herb. So I, you know, I couldn't say no, so I you know, hopped in, the, in his uh, station wagon, and started driving down from the top of the holler to Tommy Ferguson's house. And I was literally, you know, driving shotgun. Because uh, that's what giving me a shotgun. Uh, <laughs> we get to Tommy Ferguson's house, and a car turns out. Uh, and I noticed that, and Tesla says, let's, let's get him, Hort. And I said, holy, what, what am I doing? I can't do this. Uh, so Ethel then blocks the car from uh, from getting out, and I noticed that there's a canoe on the on the roof, uh, and it turned out to be, and, you know, Ethel was there, you know, pointing his pistol at the driver, uh, and it turned out to be a family that was just uh, looking for uh, the local uh, place to to stay. <laughs> so there were events like that that would 
that, that happened. It sounds like there needed to be a documentary about the the making of. You needed another crew there to film to film you. <laughs> it sounds very dramatic. Uh, yeah, I I know there is one scene in the film where one of the the women whose husband is a minor pulls a a gun out of her shirt, and it's it's a pretty shocking image. Um, so ultimately, oh, the film. That, one, oh, go ahead. That, that that was Lois. Lois Scott. And she's a character. Steals the scene, that's for right. sure. So after well, all of this... Oh, go ahead. Well, I have to give uh, Barbara credit because she uh, established a relationship with the with the women miners. The men were you know, a little more guarded so that they were comfortable with us just sort of you know hanging out. And when a moment happened, like Lois taking the pistol out of her shirt, we knew her well enough so I could start filming before she actually pulled it out. <laughs> uh, so we knew that something was going going to happen, which is the the thing about cinema verite filming is that, uh, and that sometimes moments like that happen. And you have to be prepared and rolling. And sometimes you just have to, to wait. And then other times, you know that there's a volatile situation, like the, like the day when they moved the picket line to block the road for the strike breakers to enter the mine. Uh, and I did a shot of... Uh, we're actually my camera after you know I was uh, pistol whipped and they tried to they, I had to roll down the ravine. Uh, my lens was was broken. It was it was loose, so I had to tape it. <laughs> so the shot is the the focus uh, is a little little off in it, but it's a, a shot of uh, Ethel Phillips and the other coal miners pointing their guns at uh, the strike breakers in case of Collins. And you didn't know what was going to happen. Suddenly they could start shooting and, uh, you know, we were like in the middle of it. So you had to find a position near a car's engine. So if they started shooting, at least the shots would be blocked. That's that's a lot to think about while you're filming such dangerous um, situations. I, I know what one part I found very compelling is when the women laid down in the street uh, to block um, the the other you know workers from coming in and taking their husbands' jobs, and um, and also you you follow them to jail when when they end up in jail. You're you're right there in the jail cell with them, and I was really um, impressed by the access you got. Was there? How did you get into the to the jail to film? Uh, well, that, that's a good question. Uh, the laws in Harlan County are different from other parts of the world. <laughs> so we just we just went in, and they allowed us in with the cameras. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So after all of this, the film won an Oscar. And that I just wonder if you could talk about what it was like when you heard the news. Uh, it was exciting. We were sitting with the other filmmakers who were up for Best Documentary. And I knew some of them because they had helped me uh, make a documentary on Veterans Against the War. So if they won, I would have been happy. Uh, it was uh, a surprise. Uh, afterwards, uh Sylvester Stallone ran into us and uh, gave uh, Barbara a punch in her shoulders. Way to go, girl. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a great experience. Yeah, sounds like it. So the next documentary you shot um, with Barbara Koppel, American Dream, which was released in 1990, also won an Oscar. Um, so... <laughs> For anyone who's not familiar with that movie, could you talk a little bit about uh, what that film is about? Sure. And ironically, uh, Harlan took around 10 years to make. American Dream took around 10 years to make. We were very slowly. And uh, after that, uh, we didn't really make it 
many more uh, similar verite documentaries. Just it's something you can do when you're young and you don't have uh, a lot of responsibilities. Uh, for American Dream, we had a our son was went on location in Worthington, Minnesota. Our son was uh, around uh, one years old. Um, so American Dream was again about a strike uh, at a Hormel meatpacking plant, and uh, in the union hall there was a banner, "United We Stand, Divided We Fall." And what I found interesting about the strike is that the local that we were filming uh, went on strike to get more pay than the other locals. <laughs> and it was an entirely different, you know, type of story than, uh, than Harlan, where uh, it was a strike that was, you know, with the United Mine Workers. Uh, this, this was different, where... Uh, the strike was about getting more pay than other meat packers. Uh, that's and there was, that's yeah. interesting. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, so it was based more on the uh, on the people, the uh, the union leaders, and then the uh, consultants for the uh, union to. Uh, embarrass the uh, the company in order to leverage uh, higher wages, but the union itself was uh, on the outside because it would only want to strike if all the other locals were involved in it. So it was a more you know complex story in the uh, in the age of. Uh, me too. <laughs> yeah, one thing about that movie, it's, uh, I think there may be a title card that mentions that the company was making $39 million in profits, which back then was a significant amount of money, but they, they nevertheless cut the wages of their workers by 20%. And uh, I watched these movies back-to-back to prepare uh, to talk to you. I had seen them before, but it had been a while. And I, I really noticed that in this movie – uh, when the National Guard comes in to keep the streets open to the factory, they have on riot gear, whereas in Harlan County in the early days of the strike, they come just with billy clubs, no no riot gear. So it's interesting to see how as um, time passes, <laughs> things, um, I think they escalate, you know, faster and faster. Um, uh, so It's also the difference between uh, – <clears throat> Ohio and uh, Minnesota from uh, Appalachia. Uh, in Appalachia, I, I don't think they still have uh, riot gear. <laughs> uh, and I don't really remember the police or the sheriffs doing much to disrupt the uh, confrontation on the picket line. If, you know, for example, when the uh, coal miner was uh, was killed, uh, you know we went to the hospital, and uh, you would think these the state police would, uh, you know, be looking for the for the murders, and but in fact what happened is that the state police took the guy who killed the coal miner and, and took him to West Virginia for his safety. Wow. And well, that's yeah. One, one thing I, I I didn't film is that the coal miner was on life support, so we were staying up, you know, all night at the hospital to see what would what happened. Uh, and I went to the uh, one of the empty halls, and there was a guy walking down the hall with a shotgun, uh, kicking in the doors of uh, various. Uh, Rooms to see whether we could find Bill Bruner, who had shot the coal miner, so he could shoot him. <laughs> the police were never around. So they had taken wow. Bill to out of out of state, uh, and the, the police uh, did not intervene when uh, the you know 
when Basil, you know, threatened me with a pistol and when they were firing, you know, automatic weapons over the heads of the picketers in the picket line, uh, they they were pretty lax compared to uh, the Hormel strike, where the, uh, it wasn't like the Wild West. Yeah, it sounds very different, but obviously also very compelling topic. Um, so you were also a cinematographer, um, additional cinematographer, I think, on the Oscar-winning Woodstock movie, and I would love to hear a little bit about that experience, what it was like to be there and film in the midst of everything going on. Well, I was the youngest, least important cameraman on the Woodstock movie. Uh, it was my first paying job as a cameraman, and it won an Academy Award. So I figured, boy, this could be an interesting career. <laughs> but yeah. what, what, what I discovered is that uh, Michael Wadley was the director, and I was uh, heard that he had optical printers, and I told him about an optical printer, and he said, no, I can't help you with that, but... Uh, do you shoot? And I said, yeah. He said, do you have a camera? And I said, yeah. He said, well, can you uh, be in uh, Bethel in uh, next week and, and shoot for me? Uh, so at that time, uh, Wadley's company was uh, producing the Woodstock movie by itself, and he had Martin Scorsese as an editor, Thelma Schumacher, and a bunch of, for me, seemed like older cameramen. They were all sort of NYU uh, graduates. And the first meeting, I uh, were sitting around near the, the stage, uh, and they were, you know, I think a joint was passed, and uh, the older cameramen all given assignments to film on stage, and my assignment was to do uh, film in the crowd. Or when it rained, you know, someone's got to, like, you know, go out there and film... Uh, so that was my footage of the mudsliding. <laughs> well, I guess I have to give the the younger guy the harder assignment because I could imagine there were a lot of challenges being in right in that crowd. Um, so in the well, 80s... The, the, oh, go ahead. There, there were. Uh, the, the, the crowd... <laughs> uh, to, to do the crowd shots, uh, I remember one day I had to... I started at the stage to then walk through the crowd, which was, you know, like half a million people. Uh, and being a good hippie, I didn't want to just, you know, take shots of people. I wanted to ask their, you know, permission, if it's okay for me to shoot them. Uh, so we'd be sitting around, and uh, then they, someone would pass a joint, uh, and I'd take the shot, and then I'd move on, and then the same scene repeated over and over again. So by the time I got to the end of the crowd, around uh, three hours, four hours later, uh, I was almost crawling. So if <laughs> I have to, uh, I, I've got to chill out and do something. So uh, and my my girlfriend was helping me, was acting as the assistant and helping me, you know, do the shooting. And uh, so we lugged a tripod up on one of the towers and set it up. And I had a Bolex camera, and for, I think, around an hour, I manually did single frames as I tried to stay awake. Click, click, click. So it turned out to be an interesting shot, because the time lapse, a lot of the people in the crowd were not moving, so they looked as though they were in real time. But then you mm -hmm. could see people in the front moving really quickly, and you could also see these little arteries where people were walking through the crowd, uh, so like roadways, and those people were moving quickly. So it was uh, it was fun doing uh, doing B-roll camera work, uh, but I did want to film on the on the stage, uh, and I was dis discovered that if you didn't sleep, uh, the, you then had an opportunity as uh, some of the the uh, cameraman uh, took snooze. So I was able to film uh, Jimi Hendrix in the morning, which was great. And uh, 
I also they have a Martin Scorsese story. Uh, underneath the stage is where uh, a number of assistant cameramen were changing the film magazines. And in the center was a pup tent with one pole. So Martin Scorsese shows up to take a nap in the in the pup tent. He's not Martin. He's not the Martin Scorsese at that time. He's just this guy from Little Italy. He has uh, cufflinks and pointed uh, Italian shoes. So he goes in and he grabs the pole, and the whole tent collapses. And the uh, assistant cameraman, he's saying, "Help! Help! Help! Let me get out of here!" But he's not Martin Scorsese yet. So they just sat around and laughed and didn't help him. <laughs> he eventually got out. Oh, my. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of stories about that, too. Um, so in the 1980s, you were directing music videos for MTV. One of the ones uh, that you did was Blondie's The Tide is High. And uh, I must say I'm completely jealous because I often imagine how fun it must have been to make music videos back then. A lot of them are very artsy, and I think uh, – the visual storytelling is a lot less formulaic than it is now. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about making music videos. Do you have any stories about working with Blondie um, that you want to share with us? Uh, sure. I actually started making music videos in uh, 71 or so, 72. Uh, <laughs> it started as uh, I was working as a cameraman at WNET, and one of the producers wanted to do a piece on how, you know, dumb heavy metal music is. And Alice Cooper happened to be in town. Uh, so my job was to, you know, film him. Um, which is great. I, I liked Alice's music. I thought it was really pretty cool. And I was sort of equipped to film music because I'd been a professional musician as a kid. So uh, when the lead guitar player started his uh, riff, you know, I just listened and said, oh, so I think I'll just pan over to this guy. And then when it stopped, so I could follow, you know, what was happening in the music. Uh, so the, the piece aired, which was critical of, of Alice, and the Alice's manager called up. So we figured, oh, good, he's going to get sued. Uh, but instead he wanted to know who had, uh, who had shot the, uh, the performance. So I started working with uh, Alice, making his uh, his uh, videos and, uh, and for his, his management company. Uh, and then his manager started managing uh, Blondie. So I then started making uh, Blondie's videos and various things. And uh, I really enjoyed working with uh with her and, and Chris. Yeah, you've had quite a career. It's completely amazing. So you've also directed many, uh, directed and produced many documentaries and documentary series, including some with your wife, uh, Dana Hines-Perry, who's also an Oscar-winning filmmaker. And I'm wondering what kind of topics you enjoy best. Well, it started, uh, since we're doing, we started doing programming for VH1 and MTV. I did a document, I did a music video, Sun City, with Little Steven, which was an anti-apartheid uh, video, and we also did a, a a documentary on the making and the issue of apartheid and Nelson Mandela. Uh, so, so then... Uh, MTV and VH1 asked me to make more of these documentaries, uh, which we did. We did a series, uh, The Drug Years, which was popular. Uh, and as, as a, in the course of doing that, uh, we sort of branched out. I did a uh, documentary on the coup in, in Haiti uh, for public television. And uh, working with, with Dana, uh, I was able to, she was the producer, uh, and it was a much more complicated uh, production doing these longer uh, series and, and, and documentaries. Uh, so in other words, 
I wouldn't have been able to make the transition from doing camera work to uh, directing videos without uh, without Dana's and the setting up of a uh, production company. Well, that's a that's fortunate. It sounds like you're the dynamic duo. So right now you're working on a documentary about Willie Mitchell, and I'd love to hear about that. Sure. Uh, it started with my friend Steve Jordan, who's a drummer uh, and is well-known, I guess, for producing Keith Richards' records and uh, plays with Eric Clapton, a uh, very talented musician. Uh, and he works a lot in Memphis at Willie Mitchell's studio. He did, uh, he got Willie Mitchell to do the horns for uh, the Keith Richards uh, record that he did in the, uh, in the 80s. At any rate, so it was his idea to do that, and it developed uh, when he was producing Boz Skaggs' uh, album and some other musicians' albums in Willie Mitchell's studio that he would call me up, and I'd come down and... It was, I guess, financed by the making of the albums, uh, and I started, you know, interviewing uh, everyone who was close to uh, to Willie. He has an unusual story. He was the guy who put the horns in uh, soul music, and that the record uh, the and he did Al Green stuff, which is well known. But what is not so well known is that the musicians who did the uh, Otis Redding and uh, the, uh, all the Stax records uh, hits uh, were from this band. Carl Jackson Jr., the drummer, uh, Booker T., the horn player, uh, he trained these guys and, uh, and set the template for uh, the soul music that came out of Stax and uh, and other studios. And so it's, one what's the the... Just, it's one of those documentaries that we just started doing. I so see. And what's the status? The... Is, what's... The, the status is, is that it's uh, shot and edited, but with uh, COVID coming, uh, it's been on the on the shelf until you know you can. Uh, do fundraising screenings and uh, travel and do stuff like that. So in the meantime, I've been doing uh, holograms. I started uh, teaching a special project in holography at Bard College, and then uh, I reclaimed a uh, machine that I made in the uh, middle 70s which reprints motion picture film with a laser and makes moving uh, holograms. At that time, uh, I about holograms. <laughs> uh, holography is a new medium. The first laser was built in 1962. And up until uh, the 70s, holograms could only be made on a vibration isolation table in a laboratory of inanimate objects. So you couldn't make holograms of outdoor scenes or of people moving because the, using a laser, which is light that uh, you know, a particular amplitude and frequency, what you're doing is you're splitting the laser light and then recombining it on the film plane. And it has to be done exactly and it's uh, unlike uh, photography and film and video, which record light intensity, holography is recording light itself. So it has unusual features where uh, you can take a uh, transmission hologram look at, and break it and look at each piece like a keyhole and you can see the whole scene. You can look at a hologram of a glass of water under a microscope and you can see the bacteria in the water. So what, what you're making for a white light viewable hologram, the hologram is actually functioning as a lens and it's redirecting the light from the light source so you see an image that appears in space. So 
1970, uh, my doorbell rang in Soho, uh, and Lloyd Cross, uh, you know, was at the door, and he said, are you responsible for the orange light on my floor? And I said, okay, this is, you know, Soho in the early 70s. Uh, things like this happen. Uh, anyway, so I checked it out, and sure enough, I light at 5 o'clock in the afternoon would uh, project onto his floor of his loft across the street. And uh, wow. he, came, he came to my studio and looked at a machine I had, an optical printer, which is how you do special effects in film. You're reprinting motion picture film. And Lloyd said, well, you can uh, use the laser as the light source and make uh, holograms of the film frames. So I thought this was very interesting. He was, he was in New York uh, at that time having one of the first hologram shows uh, at uh, Finch College. Anyway, so he went to California, and a year later, when I was making uh, videos for Alice Cooper, he said, uh, Hart, can you uh, come to the studio and film the first holographic movie with uh, Alice Cooper and Salvador Dali? So I said, sure. Uh, so I filmed the uh, I filmed both Alice and Dolly and uh, asked about the hologram. They said, oh, the Lloyd Cross is making the hologram, and this is the first holographic movie. So what Lloyd had innovated was a way that you could make holograms of movement by reprinting the, the making holograms of the film frames uh, and uh, also being able to uh, film images from outdoors. So it's a major development of, of that uh, technology. And uh, it's sort of exciting. And uh, I got a Fugelheim Fellowship and some NEA grants. And a couple of friends took one of my optical printers and, with Lloyd's help, made a machine which uh, makes moving holograms, holographic movies, and started a uh, film company to, uh, to do that. Uh, then <laughs> uh, I, I still had the you know, production companies making movies, and uh, I was had a show of my holograms recently at uh, Bard College, and I was asked to teach a special project in holography. So I reclaimed my machine and started a laboratory up here in the uh, in the country, uh, making making holograms. So. That's what a boy has to do, you know, during the pandemic. Well, I would love to. I would love to see the work you're doing. Um, so hopefully, at some point, I'll get to uh, to uh, New York again um, before too long. Um, so we have, I don't know, ten minutes or so left. Uh, but I did want to ask you about. Uh, I know you've also shot for Michael Moore. I would love to hear a little bit about that. Uh, well, Michael is a very funny guy. Uh, he had a uh, contract with NBC to do a series called TV Nation, uh, and he hired me to uh, to shoot it. And his idea was that he would get uh, actors and comedians to play his role and uh, make you know short uh, series. Of uh, to then you know be the TV nation. So I was, he was figuring it out, and the the, f the first thing I filmed was uh, some stand-up comics uh, pretending that they were going to uh, buy a house on the Love Canal, which was a toxic waste dump in which the realtor had built houses, and I noticed that the you know, the Michael Moore magic was not happening. So I started filming Michael, who was pretending that he was my camera assistant, uh, riffing on the, on the realtor. Uh, and I don't think, you know, I filmed you know, several, several other uh, scenes with him where he was trying to, this you know, process of getting other people doing his shtick. Uh, well, NBC, I think, was pretty disappointed in the in the footage, 
but they liked the uh, the Michael Moore stuff. So uh, he then he then start he then you know changed the the concept so that he was the person and not using the actors. And uh, by that time, uh, I was sort of like done with working with Michael. <laughs> Uh, I see. Well, appreciate. Yeah, so I appreciate his humor. I'm the guy's. He's absolutely brilliant, and he's he's the star, and uh, that was finally understood, and the uh, TV series uh, became, I think, relatively relatively popular. Uh, But it's not really his his thing. His thing is more in the documentary uh, format rather than a series of little little shorts. Yeah, I definitely agree. He, yeah, he, he. I can't imagine someone playing him and living up to what he himself already does. So, um, well, do you have any tips for uh, people who who want who are aspiring filmmakers? Uh, my my tip is borrowed from the soldier Martin Chirino. She passion no idea. Without passion, there's no life. Uh, so what you feel strongly about, even if it doesn't make any, any sense, uh, do it. <laughs> Embrace it. And this is, this is what happened with uh, Barbara and me on the, with Harlan County. You know, we're making a documentary without any funding and spending months doing it uh, and just making it happen. I mean, we were lucky that uh, Don Pennypaper had seen some of the footage and helped us get into the New York Film Festival. And Erwin Young, who owned uh, Dewart, uh, developed all our film without uh, charging us. Uh, I remember when the film was, was finished uh, and won an Academy Award and had a distributor. Uh, the distributor gave us an advance, and at this table were all our creditors. So the money went down the table, and by the time it came back to us, it was well, it virtually gone. <laughs> but you can, you know, if you, if, you, if you feel strongly and you develop uh, skills, uh, embrace your, your passion. Good advice. And I also, before we close out, I just would like to um, acknowledge and thank you for having been the the cinematographer on my movie, Kusama Infinity. So it was really, uh, there were many obstacles on that project too, but it was always a pleasure to work with you. And I always knew I was in good hands and that you had my back. So that was, that was terrific. <laughs> well, this, you know, this, your movie, uh, you know, proves my point about about the passion. This is a movie that you wanted to do where uh, there was really very limited funding or no funding, uh, and you kept at it and, uh, and made, you know, Kasama is now recognized, uh, and I think in part thanks to you, as being the most important uh, woman painter of her generation. She's certainly the, the best selling. Uh, woman painter in the world at the moment. Uh, and I appreciate that since my mother was her manager and biggest collector uh, and uh, being able to sell paintings. <laughs> yeah, I guess when I encountered obstacles with that movie, I, I should have, uh, we should have been filming you. You have so many great stories. Um, so before we close, is there anything that you wanted to add that I didn't already ask you about? Um, I think we've covered most of the stuff. Yeah, well, believe me, if we were, if we didn't have a time limit, there are things I would have asked you follow-up questions about. But I guess time is coming to a close, so I just want to thank you again so much for joining us and sharing all these great stories. It's been really interesting to hear to hear the details of the making of, um, especially. Harlan County, USA, is just, you know, fascinating. So, 
Do you, by the way, are you on um, social media, or would you like to share a website with um, our listeners in case they'd like to follow your career? Uh, yeah, we have a website, perryfilms.com. Yeah, and if, if anyone's listening who's interested in, uh, I guess, the final financing for your Willie Mitchell film, they should contact you there. So thank you again so much, Hart, and thank you, Claire, for handling all the technical side of this. Yes, Hart, thank you so much. Uh, both of you be well, and we look forward to uh, our show next week. Take good care, everyone. Be well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.